going through that whole thing and managing to win gold. I think the final was five weeks to the day to my surgery. And that was still getting emotional talking about it because it was pretty tough. But that was, it wasn't like my best performance by any means, but it was my best achievement, I think, because of what I came through at that time. You know, you build up something. It's not life or death, is it? It's sport, but you build up something for four years. It's your biggest deal. It's your life. And almost being told you're not going to be able to do that anymore. Mm. It sort of, or it did with me, it sort of, so first of all, you became the down and then it was some, it's like something flicked a switch and I just went, I'm going to win this. And, I'm, and I remember whether or not I actually believed that. I was like, right, I've got no choice. You know, I've come this far. Hello there, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this episode of our little show, which shares insights, ideas, and interviews from the world of high performance. Whether it is trying to understand the intricacies of it, supporting other people to their ambitions, or reflecting with a performer on their own pursuits. So if you're keen to learn from diverse fields, if you recognize the decisions are complex and ambiguous, if you understand that the route to the top is never linear, then you're in the right place. If amongst the thousands of people out there now listening to the podcast, if you're feeling in a generous mood and you'd like to give us a review on iTunes, then that would be amazing. And if you also know someone who might like these episodes, then let them know so that we can share some of the ideas about supporting champions with a wider audience. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. This week's guest is former professional squash player Nick Matthew. Nick has won the two most prestigious tournaments in the professional game, the British Open and the World Open, three times each, as well as being two-time Commonwealth champion and world number one. I think you get the picture. This guy's good at squash. This was a rich discussion where we talk about his early rise into the sport, particularly the breakthroughs that happened by chance or you could say from perseverance, from which Nick began to believe in himself. Nick shares the insights of finding his super strength that he knew he could use against his opponents. Nick has always recognised the support he's had from a number of practitioners down the line, but you'll get a sense of how important many of the team were to him as you hear some of the emotion and sentiment of thanks to those who've helped him through some of the difficult times. None less than his wife, my former colleague, Esme. I met up with Nick at his home club, Hallamshire Tennis and Squash Club in Sheffield, and spoke to him next to the court where he started as a junior and is now the show court named after Nick himself. All right, Nick Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Great to have you here. Um, now, you said that earlier you were you were training somebody else in the squash court. They didn't didn't show up. They had a bit of a dodgy knee. What, what's this all about? Does someone just someone pay you to <laughs> get pummeled by <laughs> you just stand in the middle of the court and just just make them sweat? Yeah, basically, um, one of the side things I do since I retired is run my own squash academy. And it's a bit of a passion project, really. Um, trying to, I guess, grow the sport, grow my brand within the sport, but also try and bring some of the young England squash players back to the top of the world. We had a bit of a decent spell for a while 
and sort of struggling at the top end now. We have got some good players coming up, but we've not got a single male player in the top 16 in the world currently, which is a bit of a gulf from Halcyon days when we had sort of maybe three in the top five not too long ago. Um, the girls are doing well, but yeah, on the boys' side, we, we're, it's a bit of a passion project to try and help that. Having said that, this player, player was American. His American player has come over for a month to train with me and he was limping around in the gym and warming up whilst limping and I looked at him saying, look, I know you, you're proving your dedication to me here, but is that really sensible to go on a session when your knee's a bit swollen? So you had the morning off, so I'm well rested for you, Steve. <laughs> so this isn't, the, this isn't a general public. These are good players. This isn't a general public who's just got some sort of masochistic streak that just wants an hour <laughs> yeah. of torture with you. We do do events. So one of, the, one of my, again, uh, passions is to grow the sport. So I guess people of a certain vintage might remember somebody called Jonah Barrington, who was a bit of a godfather of squash. And when he retired, he didn't disappear. He, he made it his life mission to grow the sport of squash and take it around the country, around the world. And I'm just trying to continue a little bit of his good work if you like if I can achieve a quarter of what he did he's synonymous pretty much with the sport even now so trying to take it around different clubs and do road shows and master classes and clinics and exhibition matches and people just want to get on court with you they've, have, they've seen you play so many times they want to jump on court they want to be sort of taught a few tips here and there and you know I've been to probably in the last six months since I've retired I reckon around the world I've probably been to about 70 squash clubs doing these sort of events so it's uh, it's been pretty busy. Um, it's been, it's definitely easier being an athlete uh, than being a coach, <laughs> that's for sure. So this is this is you teaching other people, or but do you still have to stay in shape and still stay fit so that you can still perform to a level there? I think that's personal pride for sure. I definitely want to stay <laughs> um, fit so I can still compete with and play against the top pros. I think certainly I am retired, but I'm almost in a semi-retired zone at the moment where I still get some of the top pros wanting to come and play me in practice and I might not be able to last as long as I once did because I'm not putting the day in day out work that you're familiar with but I am still able to play at a good level it just might be for 40 minutes so instead of a player coming in as having a hard best of five match you might come do some drills for 20 minutes I put them through their paces and then we play a hard three games let's say so but for three games I can still sort of compete with top 10 players in the world so and I'm getting that um buzz of still being able to play to a decent level mm. really so what would what would have been your at your peak of sort of training and preparation what would have been the sort of training hours that you'd need to put in on court and match practice and so on yeah I guess a typical week would be six days um when I was when I was playing, I hate saying when I was in my prime because uh, you like to, you sort of, yeah. I hate, I hate, I hate <laughs> harping on about the good old days, you know, when I was young, you know, all these different phrases. But unfortunately, I'm in that position now where you always say what you used to do. And uh, yeah, I used to train six days a week, really, at least twice a day, sometimes in off season, three times a day, if you include some of the conditioning that goes alongside it. And squash is such a multi-dimensional sport. You need to be fast yet have that endurance you know there's lots of contradictions within it as a sport you know you need to be powerful but you need to be light you need to be flexible but you need to again you yeah, have that sort of dynamic movements and 
Um, obviously, that's before you even talk about any of the techniques or tactics or mindsets and everything else. So if you're not careful, you can become a bit of a jack of all trades with squash because there are so many different facets. And I think on one hand, it kept the training fresh. You know, you could you could just as easy go out for a run as go for a swim or do some rowing or whatever as off-court training, do your weight circuit. So it kept it really interesting and fresh all the time. But at the same time, um, the challenge was then being able to focus and ha- on how you get better. You didn't want to become a jack of all trades. You wanted to become an expert at certain areas. And that was always the challenge between um, for squash, but it certainly kept the training fun and interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting concept there, isn't it? So, so you're trying to cover so many different bases there so that you've got the endurance to last a match if somebody goes toe to toe with you, but you've, but you want to try and kill it off fairly quickly with mm. some sort of powerful move or, or reading the game and technique that allows you to just conserve energy in that sense. Did you have a, a strategy for almost developing a strength, something that you were renowned for? Yeah, too late in my career, really. Not not too late, but I'd love to have learned about that, developing, I guess, super strengths a little bit earlier than I did. It took, I was probably a top 10, I, I managed to work my way up to the top 10 in the world by the time I was about 24, which if you'd have seen me play when I was 19, you wouldn't have believed that I could have been a top 10 player. I completely changed my technique, the way I held the racket at 19, which whilst I was trying to play and develop on the tour at the same time was a massive challenge, you know, learning a sport almost again from scratch when I was already a a good player was, was tough, but that involved then a lot of trying to change weaknesses and trying to develop your weaknesses. So I think I got to a certain stage in my career where I became a bit of an all rounder. I did become that seven out of 10 at everything that I mentioned before And it wasn't until I had shoulder surgery and I was off the court for about eight months in 2018, 2008, sorry, uh, the beginning of 2008, that that enforced rest made me look at where I can improve in a different sort of way. Uh, I worked with a psychologist called Mark Borden, who'd done a lot with um, England cricket and lots and lots of Olympic sports through the EIS. I'm I'm sure you know Mark through your work Mm. and he basically sat me down I think it was out of frustration more than anything that he'd been working with me for so long and I'd plateaued maybe not a bad place to be plateauing at the top 10 in the world but I wasn't able to make that breakthrough into the top five and we then looked at what are my strengths how can we turn them into match winning strengths and it took actually a bit of time off the court to to realize that and and I'm presuming then the almost the questioning and almost hitting a bit of a low point where you think I've got to do something different. Um, if you've, you've got a chance to reset with the surgery, that's a chance to potentially look at a number of other things and come back stronger in that sense. Yeah. He just asked me the simple question. What are you the best in the world at? And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, break the game down for you to win a match. How do you win a match? For example, what is it, the strategy? And I said, well, I quite like to make it hard physically for my opponent because I think I can outlast them if it get the going gets tough, right? Okay. And, you know, what's your, you know, what's your strategy in the match? So, well, I like to volley a lot and get on the court and take it early. He said, right, okay. And I analyzed the rest of the areas and maybe they were two, eight out of 10 areas and everything else was about seven. And we just took those things and, 
uh, ran with them, I guess. I think the thing with having shoulder surgery was I was able to get on the bike two days after my surgery with the, with the sling on. That sling got incredibly sweaty and horrible, by the way, because I basically oh. sat on the bike for a month until I could take it off. <laughs> um, and yeah, just worked on my fitness and I came back sort of out. I remember seeing pictures before and after that surgery in 2008 and my body shape just completely changed. I was, you know, it's not like I was overweight, but I was leaner. I was more, but I was more muscular. I just looked like I was just a different animal, literally. Um, and I'd also analyzed my game to, to try and think about how I could bring that volley and how I could bring that physicality through into my game plans and my tactics. And it just completely changed my mindset coming back on the court. And as I said, I wish I'd have learned about that earlier, but maybe when you have got glaring weaknesses, like I did have technically at the start of my career, I wouldn't have been able to do it in the same, in the same successful way. Mm-hmm. It would maybe happened at the right time because I was, I'd got to that point where I was a good all rounder. It's very difficult to work on your strengths. If you've got glaring weaknesses, you know, the two thing have to work, two things have to work hand in hand, I think. So that I'm, I'm interested to get into that about making it physically tough for your opponent, but, but can I just take you back to, to that, that point you made about 24 years old, you're starting to address your weaknesses almost. Was that, was that Even right? Even younger. No, I was, I was, I was probably about 19, 20. I spent probably, I would say the best part of three years learning how to hit the ball again, especially on my backhand from scratch, you know, learning how to grip the racket. My coach, literally told me to sit at home and watch TV with the squash racket in my hand because how I gripped the racket, I held it a bit like a frying pan. Okay. I didn't have any feel and he completely changed it. And when you think I've been playing at that point since I was eight years old, so about sort of 11, 12 years, so lots of habits to undo there. And I did get to become, I was a late developer in the juniors, but at 19, I was the number one junior in England and was probably up to about 150 in the world. Uh, as a senior as a pro and yeah I basically completely learned how to like you would co- if if I coach someone who came into me tomorrow and never played squash before the first thing I would teach them is to how how to hold the racket right and I had to learn that again at 19 okay so you're you're at the top of England squash yeah you've probably you've... the second or third best junior in the world yeah. and I learned how to hit the ball again from scratch it was a bit of a ego challenge because you know pretty much every second shot would end up in the in the lights or in the right. floor because it just felt like I couldn't hit the ball yeah so you've you've got to a level of of competence and excellence there but you're having to go right back down to basics how did that feel at the time then then you're almost re- relearning the game in some ways it was a show of faith in my coach that's for sure I changed coaches at that age I just stopped enjoying the process mm. Quite so much. My coach, when I was younger, a guy called Mark Hornby in Sheffield, he'd, you know, he'd worked a lot with me on the physical fitness, on the disciplines of the game, how to train to be a pro. It was all about, it doesn't matter how you do in the juniors. It's about if you want to become a professional, focus on that. You know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint sort of mentality. And then I just felt that sort of along the way, I lost the enjoyment a little bit of it. It was all very regimented and it got me to a, a certain level. Uh, I just felt if I'd have carried on on that level, I would have hit a wall or a plateau at some point and maybe would have then struggled to get beyond that because of the big flaws in my game technically. So I went to a renowned technical coach called David Pearson, who was a 
a bit of a character. And I remember in the first session we had, he asked me why I play squash like I've got a carrot up my bum. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a taste of things to come in terms of he's, t- he's pretty blunt. You know, basically I hit the shot and it was like I shot upwards to the roof um, as if someone had, you know, I don't know, like put a cattle rod on me or whatever yeah. and and give me an electric shock and he sort of said that you know that was his way of describing what it looked like and <laughs> so you've gone to a technical yeah, guru and, and he's told you yeah. you've got a carrot up your ass yeah basically <laughs> and I think he was probably talking about my personality as well I wasn't very good at laughing at myself took everything really seriously um and yeah it was the start of a uh, you know, he's like a second father to me. You know, we speak day in, day out. I'm going down my coaching career now. I call him every week and take his advice and he's a bit of a mentor to me. And mm. I still send players that I work with to him when I can. And, you know, they come back and are better than... After one session with DP, as we call him, they're better than they've been for about a month working with me. So I've still got a long way to go to get to his level of coaching. He's unbelievable. Right, okay. So you've you've not only... Um, so you've gone, gone and looked at your technical, um, strengths and weaknesses there, but you've had the, the mindfulness to, to s- step off a coach who's got you to, to a level of success and, and move on. Was that something, a, a decision that you made yourself or is it something that you made? Yeah, made it was a, coach? it was a tough one because I was really close to my coach, Mark, and, you know, my dad was close to him and, you know, my parents questioned my decision at one point because I definitely went backwards for a while as you can imagine changing all those things before I went before I took a bit more of a leap forwards and you know it was shown staying you know keeping the faith and um David DP had coached world champions in the past so a couple of whom were sort of idols of mine growing up so I sort of trusted his track record if you like and and the biggest thing that I trusted was that I was enjoying my squash again even though I wasn't necessarily improving short term you know, I'd stay at his house and he'd have people around for dinner and I'd just learn, just talking about squash over dinner, I'd learn so much about the fabric of the game and the history of the game and I felt like I was just soaking it all up really. I was just like a sponge and it probably was going to be two years before I reaped the rewards. But then when I did, then you saw the the improvement curve happen sort of overnight really. Okay, so so can you unpack that for us then? So you've got this leap of faith with new coach David Pearson, and you then you've then gone backwards. You had to learn how to hold a racket again, and and without that was that was must have been fairly early on in your career before Mark Borden uh, starts yeah, and sure. asking you these annoyingly perceptive sure. questions <laughs> as he as he has a habit to. But um, then, how long did it take for that to then start? getting back to where you were and then stepping on. It's funny, you just almost get that light bulb, hallelujah sort of moment where I remember being here at Hallamshire um, Tennis Squash from Sheffield where we're chatting now and I was just on one of the back courts doing a solo practice. Squash is one of those sports where it's it's probably unique in many ways where you can practice on your own really well because obviously you're on the enclosed four walls and the ball always, ball always comes back to you. So, you know, one of the real areas to improve is to hit on your own a lot and groove and drill your, your your game and I was doing that trying to put into practice what we'd learned with with David in Harrogate where he's from and I just rang him up one day going oh I just feel like it's clicked and it was weird it was 
two years, three years of sessions, it just felt like in one solo practice, everything all of a sudden came together. And I'm it, it, sure it wasn't as simplistic as that, but that's how it felt. And I remember then took taking that click and within sort of, you know, within about another year after that, by the time I was about 23, I was right on the verge of being picked for England and England squash was really strong at that point. You had to be basically top 20 in the world to be picked for England. And I remember sort of being 23 and all of a sudden my ranking shot up from, I'd, I'd gradually worked my way up to about the 80s. And then I think in one season I went from 80 to about 30 and really made the jump and just started to get confident. And then all the things that Mark had worked on as a kid, then almost the technical changes unlocked the physicality and the physiology and the mindset that I'd trained for up until that point. Oh, right. So, um, so that key moment, that tr- practice session, but sounds like it built upon an awful lot of graft, whether it's um, bike sessions with a sling on it, um, <laughs> w- whether it's sitting in front of the TV, getting that familiarity, the, f- the automatic sounds handling. Sounds obsessive, doesn't it? <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, people see the tip of the iceberg and that's, that's underneath it, isn't it? Yeah, that's the mountain that the performance is built on all yeah, those hours. Absolutely. And, you know, I always say that to, to young players now is, you know, and it's a bit of a conundrum because the story that I just told there, there was all that hard work, but then it did feel like in one session I found the click. I found the thing that suddenly everything just made sense. But I always tell them not to look for the magic formula, you know, that quick fix or because then you change a hundred things, then you don't know if something does click, you know what works. You have to stick with your process. You know, maybe 80% is things you do the same and then 20% you're just always evolving and changing all the time. If you get that the other way around, then all of a sudden if you find that click, you don't might not know what it is because you've changed too many things. So it's very much like that. And you shouldn't look for that magic formula, but then one day it might just come to you when you least expect it. Um, And that was very similar to the rankings. I remember being someone who was qualifying in the tournaments and trying to get stuck in and, you know, not quite making my breakthrough into the the major um, events. And then one day I wasn't, I'd not been feeling too well. I think it was about 2003 at this point. I'd been about 30 in the world for a year or two. And it was when England won the World Cup rugby. And I remember Mm. sitting there and being sick as a dog watching it and sort of under my blanket, still living at my mum and dad's at that point, wasn't feeling too great. I went to a tournament the following week and only time in my life I packed my bags to go straight to the airport. After my match, I was playing, I think, the three seed who was a great player, Jonathan Power from Canada. I had no chance. I was going to get the flight back home that night so that I could get well. And then we had the World Championships in Pakistan the following week. He ended up pushing off my back and broke his finger in the middle of the match, sort of halfway through the second game or something. So I ended up winning that match by default. I then played another qualifier in the next day, managed to win that. I then played, I think, the five seed who was carrying an injury and I sort of scrabbled past him and made my way. I, I, I suddenly got to the semi-final of a major event by, oh God, crook really. And then had to stay out there. That was in Qatar. Stayed out then till Pakistan. Got Took a bit of confidence into the Worlds. Got to the quarterfinals of the Worlds in Pakistan the following week. And on the back of those two tournaments, my ranking went up to 11 the following month from about 30. 
and you know, I'd pack my bags to go home in the air to the airport, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, you know, blink of an eye later, I was I was eleven in the world, and I was right up there. And I think that just, I always say that to young players, you know, these things can happen when you least expect it and you can suddenly just go boom and well, and then you bit of confidence then can work wonders, you know. And how much did you get, how much confidence did you get from those results? Because that sounds like a, a bit of a nice sort of free ride, a little bit like the guy who everyone, you know, all the speed skaters fell, fell over and he, and he came through. Yeah, I know. He Bradbury, mean. wasn't he? Um, it sounds like a, you, you you got a bit of a free ride or you had an easier journey and that bumped your ranking, but you've got a level of confidence from that. But how much do you get confidence from the results and from the process that you're going to invest in? I think just in? sort of being exposed day in, day out to those top players. You know, even a couple of them were were not well and, and getting through to the semi-final in those days, just the semis and the finals were on live TV. So it was the first time I was sort of on Sky Sports, I remember. And I got a bit of a beating in the semi-final, but it was great exposure. I learned so much from being on that stage and sort of took that into the next week really and then you know almost felt almost it made me feel that I belong a little bit that I belonged even even though like you said it was a little bit by default but it just gave me something that I ran with and I knew what it took to be on that stage and Mm. I was then able to take that to the next level it was then I think you know along the way what 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 I'm sort of describing is you hit plateaus all the time so I hit one when I was probably 150, I hit another when I was 80, I hit another when I was 30, I hit another when I was about 10. But you're trying to make it so then that they're a plateau before a further steep improvement curve rather than it being a brick wall sort of falling off a cliff or you know coming to the end. Ah, so and that's what, even if it took me a couple of years on each thing, I found a way to... Right. You're never going to go from 150 up to one in one improvement curve. You get these improvement curves, but if you stick at it, do the right things, get the right advice, plateaus will still come. But when they do come, you can then go again. And then when it comes, go again. And that's what I found in my career is when the, in my career, when the improvement did come, I shot up rather than it being like a one, two, three, four, five places at a time, you know? Mm. Um, so it sounds like you're, that, that you're describing that. Um, non-linear approach you're going up the mountain in, in a circuitous route at different with some pace and then suddenly it stalls but what you described there almost that you've you found an opportunity to get onto that world stage and go toe-to-toe with the best but you're also being mindful to think right I can learn from this I can I can actually look up at the next level and think mm-hmm. that's not too far away that kind of yeah. vicarious learning and and bolster the confidence that you're at the right level. Yeah. You're acclimatizing at that level. It's like I guess it's like climbing. Every, I haven't done it, but having watched the documentaries on El, Everest or Kilimanjaro, you know, you don't climb the whole thing in one go, right? <laughs> you know, you have to go to the different camps along the way, and sometimes you have to go back down a little bit before you go back up because you're acclimatizing all the way. You know, it's probably very similar to that. And sometimes you don't reach the very top. It's just the way that it goes. But you have to approach it in that way, otherwise you've got no chance. So tell me a bit more about this making making things physically tough for your opponents. Yeah, that, that, that squash is a tough be, sport as it is. Is that is that does that relate to the your the nickname the wolf? 
in terms of just badgering people and badgering is probably the wrong one but no it's just, yeah just harassing people pretty much <laughs> i mean i got that nickname that sort of moniker later on uh, i think it was around sort of 29 30 when but i've been playing that way my whole life really i wasn't the most gifted technically as i said when i was young so i had this style where you know i wouldn't my dad used to drill it in me. My dad was a PE teacher and he took me all around the country playing squash and he just drilled it into me. Look, you don't, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, but you, if you're going to do something, be it squash or tiddlywinks or whatever it is, you do not finish the game until you've given you absolutely ev- your all, absolutely everything. And you don't come off the court until you, he used to say, just if you're crawling off the court and the other guy's beating you, then you shake the hand and you say, well done, too good. But, don't come off having beaten yourself or not given 100%. That would be the only time when I remember he wasn't too impressed with me. He's like, well, why am I taking you down to Oxford and, and wasting a weekend if you're not going to try? You know, it was only interesting in me just giving my maximum. And that sort of then, because of my technical deficiencies, that sort of translated. And I was a bit of a cross-country runner. I loved the physical training. And I just like to make the game as hard as possible for my opponent not give them any easy points you know and I didn't go for anything cheap in squash you can play many different styles one of them is you can attack the sort of the tin and go low but you you I guess you margin for error you you risk reward you're on that edge of that risk reward all the time I like to sort of prolong the rallies and try and get the odds in my favor by getting the other guy tired and making the rally, the points long. And that was always my style. And I like to volley. I played badminton. So maybe that's something to do with me liking to volley because you obviously have to in that sport. And those two things combined, that just became my style. And the commentator um, nicknamed Chris and me the wolf because he said that I was quite relentless, ferocious, would sometimes let my emotions get the better of me as well. And yeah would like hunt my opponent down and when I got my teeth into them I wouldn't let go sort of thing when they did allow me to get my teeth into them I wouldn't let go so that was where it came from and I think it's been um, the commentator who Joey Barrington who is Jonah's son actually who nicknamed me that he's called me many 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 worse things over the years so I sort of (laughs) signed on the dotted line for that one when he gave it me because I thought that he could have called me lots lots worse (laughs) When you got given that, was that something that you would play on in terms of, okay, we've got, I, I just know that my opponents will be dreading going into an, a game with me. I'm just going to make, it's going to be tough. Um, almost like a, a full physical effort is what you're going to get with a match. With it's you. something that became, it, it got given a label, but it had been something that had approached my whole career. Behind, I always used to say, I remember the first time I went on an England senior squad, for example, when I was about, sort of 21, 22, and I got invited just as a bit of a um, training partner, you know, um, to um, what they call like a sparring partner type thing. And I remember just thinking, just leave a mark on these players so they think, oh, I wouldn't want to play him in another six months to a year, and, you know, and get stuck into them. So they think, even a couple of them thought, who's this uh, cocky little so-and-so that's, not show me enough respect type thing. And I just used to think I want to leave a mark, whoever I play, so that they remember me for next time. And that's sort of been pretty much how I've always then played. And then I like to think a few more subtleties were developed <laughs> to that over the years. But um, yeah, it was quite raw when I was younger, but that was always my my mindset, you know, give as good as you um, as you take and um, and get stuck in. If you don't do that, then what chance have you got, basically? 
So, and with the help of someone like Mark Borden, understanding this is a real strength that, that I bring, as soon as you walk into the door, yeah. that, that you can play, you can know that you can play this card, but that has to be backed up. Obviously, you have to put the graft in to build the engine to be able to do that. Um, in terms of the number of hours that you put in on in training and, and so on. Yeah, I wanted to sort of create a, again a bit of a persona that when you when your opponents played you, they knew, oh, you know, if I'm going to win this match, it's going to be horrible. I'm going to have to go to lengths that I don't really want to go. And then if they beat me, then then that's fine. But I always used to sort of that was the bare minimum that I brought to sort of every match, even when I was coming up. Um, the ranks just used to think people then maybe next time they're thinking, oh, I can't do that again. You know what I just did, even if I won, but that's hard to replicate. And yeah, I just, I guess, tried to turn that physicality into a strength. So Mark Campbell, who was my um, SNC coach um, latterly, we, we sort of turned, you know, it's a massive craze now. The CrossFit, we basically probably from about that time of the, shoulder surgery maybe even before we turned you couldn't do as much upper body at that time but even if we did you know lower limbs left arm bikes core you know everything we did was in that sort of crossfit um mindset or the different intervals involved in that and how that's a fantastic crossover for a sport like squash where it's high intensity short rest go again and see if you can maintain that intensity over a long period of time and, you know, we used to do circuits where he'd call them the rumble and it was before CrossFit really became this big thing we were doing it. So he basically just had this list of exercises, you know, at the EIS, it might be run around the building twice and then it might be, you know, do some upper bodies and then it might be skip to a thousand and then it might be 200 meters on the track and then 5k on the watt bike or, and then do lots of lunges with the power, lunge around the 200 meter track with the back uh, bag on your back up and down the stairs some boxing you know everything core you name it and he just used to just make up um, drills and each one would try and challenge a different part of your body than the one before so let's say you just ran around the building the next one might be something for upper body let's say uh, so you're working it so you never rest so basically he'd start the clock and you'd go right you've got an hour so I'm just going to keep working you for an hour nonstop and the clock would just be keep, keep going and you never got a rest for an hour. You just kept going and your rest was resting one part of your body, but you might then still, like I said, if you ran, then you might have some press ups to do or something like that. So, and they were the things that just turned me into being, you know, that wolf persona coming to life where I just attacked it and just, hung on really and that sort of with the subtleties of the psychology playing in alongside with Mark Borden and that's how I, I guess base and then the technique having come through from my coach all of a sudden I was becoming you know then the tactics I guess took care of themselves because of your training your training became your tactics so mm. it then just simplified the whole process for me mm. uh, and uh it's not as it's not as simple as that, obviously, but all all of that went into the ingredients and the into the melting pot, and that became you know there was a good period there where I guess for a few years where that all came together, and when I guess I had my peak years as a player. Okay, so I love that that point there from Mark Campbell or Coneheads as we uh, yeah. we like to call him. <laughs> um, he he's 
infusing your training with variety there, which is almost the antithesis of heart rate zone shadowing around the court, you know, which is monotonous, which is um, it's quite measurable. You could kind of benchmark yourself. But this is just throwing everything at you from all different angles yeah. that, that means that you're pretty robust and it was fun you, as well. Yeah. It was sort of, in a weird sort of way, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible, but it was fun because every session was different from the one before. You didn't know what was coming. You know, you might be put some boxing gloves on for a while and 10 minutes of the hours, you know, doing some boxing, some moving, some shadowing and you're up and down the stairs. Like I said, it was, you know, it was actually sort of in a sadistic sort of way was sort of yeah. fun. Yeah, I can imagine that. I'd imagine it was just like, <laughs> I've run out of ideas. Just crawl from here to yeah. there, and and uh, well, some days he'd say, "Look, you're going at it hard, but it's just 20 minutes, you know." And it would be, so he changed the time, different thing. And sometimes with it, the world, don't get me wrong, there were those monotonous ones where it was a bit more speed out on the track, where you're doing repeat. They were the worst ones where you do some um, repeated speed on the track, where it's basically just interval sprinting on the track. They were the ones where you just used to feel physically sick walking into the building because you knew what was ahead. Whereas those rumble ones, they were always, always my favorite. We used to have a t-shirt that the person who performed, we used to do them in a group and the person who performed the best used to get the, um, the t-shirt saying, you know, I can't remember what it said on it now. Oh, unbreakable. It was a t-shirt that said unbreakable on it. And the person who <laughs> people would flock from, they became a bit of a legend. So people would flock from, if you knew we were doing one from different parts of the country and come and join in this circuit. And it definitely did break some people. <laughs> and because it, it was multifaceted, like you say, I remember one guy, um, Peter Barker coming from London and absolutely smashing me on the bike he was unbelievable i think he did 5k and i was on four and a half k and um but then we went out to the track and we had to lunge 100 meters and how and that was after about 47 minutes after the rumble he literally got to about 80 meters and crumbled into a heap type of thing <laughs> because and i was able to keep going so even the ones that were looking okay. good, it would break you in different ways. So you used to get this T-shirt and the person who performed best, Mark, would award it to him at the end of the week and they had to come back and defend their title the next week or two. So it was, it was quite, it made it competitive as well, which is always, uh, always good. I'm just imagining some sort of Anton Deck theme tune, let's get ready to rumble or have <laughs> Hungry like the wolf. Yeah. Duran Duran. <laughs> um, I've had a quid for every time I've walked onto the court with that. It's I, not my favourite song, but I go with it. Brilliant. So you hinted then when all this started to come together and you, you really had that, that you, you broke away from that plateau of 10th in the world and went up to the single figures. And tell us a bit about that transition and, and what was important in that phase. Yeah, it was, um, as I said, I walked in to see Mark for my usual catch-up, monthly catch-up, Mark Borden with Sling On. And I think... I think he was changing roles in his career and he was he was moving on to a bit more of a consultancy role and was deciding which athletes he was going to work with basically and I think it got to a point where I'd been in the same ranking for about three or four years and all of our sessions were a bit reactive. I remember him coming to see me play the first time live in about 2009. We'd been working together probably since 2006 and just... I actually won the match and won the tournament and he just called me into his office the next morning just saying, you're not going to get anywhere consistently if that continues. It was just 
like a boxer wildly throwing punches and hoping it all comes together at the end. There was no strategy. I was getting frustrated with the referee, my opponent. You know, I had all the raw ingredients, but they weren't put together in any sort of structure. And our sessions became a bit like that. Whenever I had something that was a bit of a problem, I'd go, oh, Mark, can you help me fix this and overcome it? And he wanted to start to get me to actually come and let's be proactive, let's plan ahead. Okay. How can we get ahead of this? How can we get this structure? And I think it was exasperation more than anything, but he, he, he gave me this analogy of David Beckham, uh, who was obviously at the time England captain, etc. And he said, you know, he's not hardly kick it with his left foot. He's not the fastest player in the world, probably not going to win many headers, but what he is good at, putting that ball in the box, you know, the free kicks, the corners, you know, scoring like the goal for England that last minute, that free kick that mm. got them into the World Cup that time. He's the best in the world at that. And after training, he doesn't go and practice his speed or his head in. He, he practices his free kicks. You know, he'll do thousands of them because he knows that's the thing that can make the difference between a nil-nil, one-nil or so mm. on. And he just sort of said to me, you know, what's your that's his super strength what's yours and that's where we came up with this analogy and, and how it started and how you know I was always I was sort of part way of the way there as I've explained previously with the physicality and the volume but actually then you can sometimes think oh that's fine we'll just let that carry on and we'll work on other areas but actually honing in on that and turning it into something that's going to win you matches that you can base your whole strategy around and then game plans became less about worrying about your opponents than thinking about what am I going to do? And it just changed my whole thinking. And I was off the court for eight months with the shoulder surgery, but within, and this sounds really simplistic saying it now, but within 18 months of coming back to the tour, I was world number one. And, you know, it was, it was pretty much down to, I think I had all the raw ingredients and I'd, I'd done all the work over the years. I was 28 by this point, so I was a, a seasoned pro who'd been top 10 in the world, but they'd all, my wins had always been one-offs. They'd not been consistent, and that just gave me a consistent strategy that then I was ready to sort of take on the world with. And so um, so you started to get to that, that top level. It all started to, to come together. You got a, a change in, in mindset. One of the, It seems like one of the unique aspects of squash is that you're often playing the same people at the top. And that, I suppose that applies to a number of different sports. Um, the, the best tend to, to rise. How is it in terms of managing the rivalries that, of, of being able to get to the top? You have to, you have to meet those people and play your consistent game. You'll know what you're going to get from them. Um, how was it through the years for you? Yeah, I think I've probably, I think you can probably, some of the biggest rivalries I've had up into three categories. You had, uh, the Egyptians who are sort of top of the world in squash at the moment I had sort of almost three years of them I had Armin Shabana who was a lefty won four world titles and we had a bit of a 50-50 um, rivalry there was Rami Ashour who when I was one in the world he was two and, and vice versa we were one and two in the world for probably about three years between 2010 and 2013 and he, to me, took the game. He's responsible for the modern game as it looks now. If anyone's seen squash, it's dynamic. It's full court. It's not as attritional to the back of the court as it was. It's full court dynamic and, you know, behind the back, through the legs, diving. He was almost single-handedly the person who took it to that next level. 
Um, and then you said about eras changing a young Egyptian called Mohammed El Shabagi who came up, who's, who's been number one in the world over the last few years. And he was the first one of the next generation that sort of dared to knock my generation off the top. And, and almost the first person that challenged me physically, because I always had that over most people. And he was the first one who came up and went, I'm going to stand toe to toe with you. So that was tough. So it was the Egyptians. And then there was the England friend. France rivalry with that with Gregory Gaultier and that was always an interesting um contrast with you know the clash in the cultures and the styles and and things like that and Greg was actually one of my best friends off the court but on the court people were always shocked by that because on the court we looked like we wanted to kill each other half the time um and then there was the domestic rivalry I had with James Wilstrop which as well I think we played something like 75 times as professionals, which is quite a lot. When you think Federer and Nadal, I don't think have played even that many times. Um, so we played, you know, we're from, James is from Pontefract and so only about 30 miles from Sheffield. So, but we played in world championship finals, British Open, US Open, Commonwealth Games, um, both got to world number one and we had a, a bit of a falling out on court around 2009 time. In fact, that was the match that Mark Borden watched me play and went, you can't carry on like this, um, bullying a China shop. And our relationship never really recovered. We were very different characters and we had a bit of a rivalry that then revolved around not getting on. And, you know, national championships would be sold out months in advance in the hope that we would play in the final because you were either in one camp or the other. You know, it wasn't, there was no... Uh, sitting on the fence with that one so we had big rivalries and they probably probably define careers in a way those sort of rivalries and it's been fun mm-hmm. to fun to have them fun to look back on them now as well but at the time you can sometimes get caught up in the heat of them for sure and how did you manage yourself did you manage yourself differently or to try and maintain you and your consistent and your work ethic on court but also make sure that you were adjusting your game because you sounds like you've, you've got very different opponents there to to work with completely I think um certainly if you're going on a bad run against somebody I remember going on a bad run against Rami Ashour and getting a bit obsessed with it and you can take your eye off what you're doing and start worrying about them too much um Rami was probably the only player I ever came across where I specifically trained for him it got to the point where I was like I'm getting to every final at the moment and I just can't beat the guy. So I designed routines and drills that were specific for him. Um, the rest of the time, you're trying to find that balance between imparting what you're doing versus, you know, guarding against the other opponent's strengths as well. And if you, because at that level, they've not really got many gaping weaknesses, uh, like glaring weaknesses. So, I had to try and find the balance, you know, how much do I focus on me versus focusing on them? And I think if you focus too much on them, even if they're the best player in the world, you, all you're doing is trying to stop them, limit what they're doing without imposing what you were doing. And that work I did with Mark was all about the opposite, trying to impose. So I always tried to, I guess, keep any personal things or um, rivalries as much as I could out of it and focus on those um, processes and the things that I could control a little bit more. And if you had a, an insight looking back now, um, what would be your kind of top top tip of managing that? Because uh, sort of attending to other people versus honing what you've got, what's, what's the balance there? I think it's the, I think for me, I found a balance that it was about what I could do. 
And but I had to also couldn't put my head in the sand with that. I had to also then respect one or two things about my opponent that I had to be aware of. Um, simply speaking, if I didn't do that, I found it too much of an emotional drain. You know, if you're thinking too personally, um, too much about them, you weren't playing freely, and then you might win that match on that day. But then, if you've got to play, say, a final the next day, can you then do that again? you know, and then you've got another tournament the next week. You know, I found that physically it's very easy to measure tiredness, for example. You know, you've got all the markers, haven't you, in, in fitness, you know, your heart rate, you know, how you feel, your muscle, what you're doing in training this week compared to last, the volume, um, etc. But emotionally, it's very hard to measure tiredness. You know, it only sometimes comes out when you're in a pressure situation and you go, actually... I didn't realise I'm actually a bit wiped out here. And I was always sort of, I guess, God, I had that feeling a few times and then realised that it was because maybe you're wasting energy in the wrong areas and, you know, trying to conserve. And there's an art to that as well. It takes many years to learn, but trying to conserve that emotional energy for when you most need it. You know, if you're expending all that in round one and you've still got five days in a row to go. Sometimes you might have to, you've got no choice, otherwise you're going to go out. But ideally... You're saving that for when you need it because otherwise it'll just when you need it, it'll creep up on you that the tank's empty, you know. Mm. Uh, that's that's a really perceptive insight there, just in terms of pacing. I guess you're you're looking for that consistency at the top level, whether it is going for the tournament win or whether it is accruing points that accumulate in a world number one. You're looking for that consistency above opponents that you can make sure that you're you're, you're playing the long game in some ways. It's like a, a car, you know, the physical side, the technical side, the tactical side. You can use the petrol gauge and see how much you've got left and where you are in terms of playing at the maximum, you know, is the tank full. Whereas I think that sort of mentally or emotionally, sometimes it's like driving a car without a petrol gauge and you all the time you sort of, you're not quite sure how much you've got left until you need it if that makes sense. And it's, it's, it really, there's been definitely a couple of times where, because it's so unmeasurable that it creeps up on you. So it's really important to, to keep as much of that in reserve for when you really need it. And all those little things add up, like, you know, as a professional athlete, you spend a lot of your time having an afternoon nap at a tournament or putting your feet up and watching TV because you're conserving that emotional energy for when you need it. So, so 2010, world number one, and then uh, there's a period of sort of consistency at that level. Um, there's a phase there that, that's critical to sustaining high performance because it's all right just getting to, to the top, but keeping, keeping the consistency. So you've alluded to one particular tactic about managing the emotions and, and, and um, being efficient in that way. What other insights have you got from sustaining performance? Yeah, I think the first time I got to world number one, I was, it was complete shock. Um, it happened the last tournament of the season. So I had the whole summer break as, as world number one. And then it, the first tournament back, I actually won, but found it a massive wrench emotionally, as I just said. And I found myself going on court every time trying in my head. I had to prove to the people watching that I was the best player now and. Um, I don't know. Like, I just felt like I had to play shots that weren't shots I'd play normally or do things that impress people. And 
always be proving every time, even if it was a practice, always proving that I was the best player. And rather than just letting it happen and just letting the results take care of themselves. And I didn't last very long at World War One the first time round. Uh, I think I lasted about four months and two of them were in the off season. So it was basically a month or two. And it wasn't until I got that back the second time round that I felt a lot more comfortable in my skin as well than one and realised the errors the mm. first time round. So like an authentic game, you you playing as if you thought I need to play a certain way to be world number one rather than connecting with your authentic game. Yeah, I just had to felt like I had to prove myself every time I went on the court, whereas, you know, I'd already you know, I didn't need to prove myself to anyone. You know, what the what I'd done to get there was you know, was obviously proof enough in the pudding there. And uh, I sort of got back to that second time round and just carried on. Like if someone was going to beat me, they were going to beat me. It doesn't matter whether I was world number one or world number 100, the same rules apply. And just got back to doing what I did well. And that gave me that little bit of consistency and longevity. And then I think I got the world number one spot in varying times. Maybe I got there four times and I held it for, I think, 20 months overall. But the second time was when I had my real probably peak period around 2011 I think I held it for the whole um, calendar year um, and I guess there's a fine line as an athlete where everything's um, sort of singing from the same hymn sheet at, at one time I mentioned those four areas of the physical the technical the tactical and the mental side and at that time everything was really like an equalizer on the old car stereos everything was firing together I think as you get older in your career you, some things improve. Like I was probably tactically better as I got older, mentally more um, tuned in, but physically you're fighting not to drop. So there was that period there for two or three years when everything was at the top at the same time and just trying to... I was proud that it happened quite late because I, I didn't get to world number one or world champion until I was 30, which is relatively late. I think it's the latest first-time world champion in squash, but... um. I almost felt more comfortable there because I was a little bit older, if that made sense. And that, and that was, that helped me stay there for a little bit. I'd love to have stayed for longer and get there earlier, of course, but, um, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, tell me about, um, tell me about 2014. Um, obviously you had a, uh, your, your baby daughter that year as well. Uh, and, um, but that seemed as though that was a culmination of all of the graft. The performance at the Commonwealth Games, the recognition of being flag bearer. Well, I should go. I should go back a step first. Obviously, to have a daughter, you have to have had a wife, pretty much, or, or a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, um, meeting my wife Esme in 2010, she often ribs me, and she's probably not far from the truth. Was that I'd never won anything until really until we met <laughs> so we met September 2010, and I became world champion for the first time in November. 2010 uh won my first commonwealth gold medal i think october 2010 so she always teases me saying that you know i was i wasn't the finished article until i met her type of thing and that brought everything together so uh yeah well credit where it's due there for sure so we should recognize esme is your and and she was a physiologist at the english institute of sport obviously i i, I managed Es for a while but um I sort of thought, I think you're sort of semi in a roundabout way responsible for us meeting. Oh, Steve. I'm not sure. Actually, well, you gave Esme but... her first job at the EIS, didn't you? <laughs> and we met through the EIS. So if you hadn't have given her that job, we might never have met. Maybe Silla Black is the sort of future <laughs> career for that of meeting <laughs> athletes. So as a physiologist, yeah. uh, worked with British Cycling. 
And and what does she attribute her success for you? As I presume there just wasn't rounding there. of my life, right. nothing to do with any Take scientific it. knowledge. <laughs> it's an unnecessary arrogance that you might have that she could chip that pretty off. Much, you. Right, pretty much, pretty okay. much, just everything. Yeah, everything that a good um, wife would do, or a good husband in that same way. Right. Okay. So just just do the correlation. You met me then. You started becoming successful then. Exactly. Uh, so right. Yeah, I did get. Don't get me wrong. She did. You know, I got a couple of tips every now and. Again, but you know, when she works for British Cycling and, and Team Sky, there was some, a lot, lot of sort of secret wind tunnel tests going on to get that extra 0.001% second yeah. that you know, I'm not quite yeah. sure they applied to squash in the same way. But um, even if I'd wanted to, they were uh, sort of way below my pay grade, and I never, I was never privy to all that sort of um, science. I don't think, but uh, really interesting. Did get some great tips from her. Little things like. She did a sleep study once, mm. so our bedroom is always at the, the right temperature to promote healthy sleep and you know, little things like that. It doesn't do you any harm having a wife who's in the know and has to look after your body, that's for sure. That's amazing that you listen to your partner. Um, <laughs> I don't have the same every now and I don't again have the same privilege at all. My daughter's doing <laughs> sports studies GCSE and she does not want to listen to me at all. Uh, <laughs> um Okay, so yes, uh, 2014, uh, daughter, uh, Commonwealth Games, flag bearer uh, in terms of recognition. It was probably the tumultuous, is that, is that the right Let's word? Let's go tumultuous, yeah. Tumultuous, yeah. it was probably the most tumultuous time of my life, really. Glasgow 2014, um, going back a step, obviously squash, not yet becoming Olympics. If I think London 2012, I was around about at my peak at that time, it would have been amazing to have been part of that. Failing that, Glasgow was the next big thing, biggest thing for squash. And I'd been pretty much trying to peak for it for four years. As anyone in an Olympic cycle will tell you, it's a four-year process, right? And yeah, that was my four years. Only baby daughter on the way as well. Uh, the Games are end of July and Charlotte was due early September. So that was on the horizon. Any parent for the first time will tell you there's lots going on around that time. But five weeks out from the games, I needed knee surgery um, on my right knee, which obviously not great timing. <laughs> There's never great timing for surgery, but that wasn't it. And was lucky, really. I was struggling with this niggle in my knee and he was feeling better one day and not the next. And I was going to a concert. I was going to Kings of Leon in Sheffield. It was my favourite band. And happened to stumble across Richard Higgins, who's the doctor at EIS Sheffield. He was at, he's obviously got the same musical taste. And and we're walking up the stairs together to this concert. And he said, are you limping there, Nick? And I was like, oh, yeah, just my knee's playing up a bit at the moment. And he went, come see me in the morning. And it turned out he'd seen a lot of that through his links with football and Sheffield Wednesday, a lot of meniscus injuries. And I went straight for a scan. He rang me up. Not good news. It's usually six to eight weeks minimum and the first round was in four and a half weeks at this point so that was quite stressful um getting ready for that and yeah that i mean going through the whole thing funny story about carrying the flag in a minute but going through that whole thing and managing to win gold i think the final was five weeks to the day to my surgery and that was Still getting emotional talking about it because it was pretty tough. But that was, it wasn't like my best performance by any means, but it was my best achievement, I think, because of what I came through at that time. Mm. 
so sort of still not quite sure how I did it. Jade leader, who was our physio, was Mark Campbell, Richard, the whole team, Rob Johnson, who's my physio, like they sort of, oh, if I could have split it four ways, I'd have given them yeah. a quarter of the medal each, to be honest, because they, yeah, they got me through that for sure. It's a tough times. I can see the emotion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Still, even now, that's probably the one thing in my career that gets me because sort of not, I remember sitting there getting the news from Richard and you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I've been building, you know, you build up something. It's not life or death, is it? It's sport, but you build up something for four years. It's your biggest deal. It's your life. And almost being told you're not going to be able to do that anymore. Mm. It sort of, or it did with me, it sort of, so first of all, you became the down and then it was some, it's like something flicked a switch and I just went, I'm going to win this. And I remember whether or not I actually believed that. I was like, right, I've got no choice. You know, I've come this far. And I like slept with the game ready machine on. The, if anyone's seen that, the ice machine that makes annoying vibrating noises all night. And I just slept with it on and stuff and just lived with it attached to me and did my training. And I think after two and a half weeks, I got back on court and I was able to stand still and hit the ball for 10 minutes. That was the maximum without taking a step, just getting my eye back in little by little. And it, it felt like a painstaking year long process that sort of happened over <laughs> four weeks. And it was, uh, you know, Ron England training camps and everyone else is fine tuning and honing their skills ahead of it. And I'm sort of in the back room, sort of, you know, ghosting with barefoot in a sand pit, um, at half speed trying to strengthen up the muscles around my knee so it was pretty pretty tough and yeah came out in the end somehow yeah, so, so how did you do that I mean so you, you defied a lot kind of stubbornness medical <laughs> science and but also just throwing everything at it it's just thinking right if game ready works for 10 minutes a day I'll do it for two, two hours a day pretty much I just I just literally threw the kitchen sink at it and to put it into perspective I actually did my left one exactly a year later and we did that one properly without the <laughs> without taking the risk. So I likened it to sort of climbing a ladder. You know, if you miss a couple of rungs at a time, you might go up, you might get to the top faster, but you're increasing your likelihood of falling. And that's how I did the right one before the Commonwealth. But the left one, we took it painstakingly one step at a time, nice and safe. And it probably took me, I would say, until I was 100% fit, Again, I would say eight to 10 weeks. And, you know, I did this one in four and a half, five. So it was a a risky process, but, you know, the expertise that was there and, you know, I was taped up to the the nines, you know, I was on, you know, anti-inflammatories, but, you know, did what I did. And yeah, the the big conundrum was was the flag carrying because I wasn't going to go to the opening ceremony because it was like, you know, it's not just the time that you go out and walk around that's maybe 10 minutes it's that you have to be there two hours before you're on your feet the whole time a lot of athletes who are competing the next day simply as much as the experience would be fantastic they don't go because you're resting right there's no point wasting four years of preparation because you're tired from being on your feet all day so I wasn't going to go because I thought my knee would risk swelling up so got called into our chef de mission's office i thought i'd done something wrong i was like what have i done now and i got called in and she informed me uh, it's like going into the headmaster's office at school and she informed me that i was been chosen to do the flag and i carry the flag and i was like wow 
Um, so made the decision. Obviously, the decision was taken out of my hands then. I mean, there was no way I wasn't going to go with that honour. So Jade, our physio, as we walk into the stadium, I walked 10 metres. We stopped for the next team to come on. She had she carried a chair around with her. No way. And then I sat down in the chair, put my foot up, and then walked 10 metres, sat down again. Meanwhile, the five, 600 England athletes behind me that had voted for me to carry the flag, I think were wondering where their chairs were. <laughs> and if they'd have had a choice of unnominating me to carry the flag at that time, they probably would have done. Who's this person thinking? Because I would obviously, I'd not really promoted the fact, uh, you know, it wasn't publicised that I'd had this injury. I was keeping it as quiet as I could. And... They didn't know that, obviously. So they think, who's this diva? Who's he think he is? You know, he's got someone carrying a throne for him to sit down on, and he can sit down every time he goes 10 metres. Where's our chair? So, yeah, I was probably the least popular flag bearer in history by the time I got out there, but I managed to get round without dropping it and tripping up. And, uh, yeah. I it's, love that. That, that sounds like the funny. most sort of selective... Uh, I will ta- I will carry the flag as long as I get a chair and an entourage and a certain filter yeah, water. Yeah, the red carpet, and I wanted um, someone to carry my water, and someone had to carry uh, some food for me to keep me hydrated and fed and stuff. <laughs> Great, no. Great, Mariah story. Carey, your heart. <laughs> Great insight, though. The, you know, legends of uh, of sports science, of physiotherapy, <laughs> like Jade, Rob, and Rich, and and Mark, but but. All that technical expertise, but but reliant on them to just to go the extra mile in terms of supporting you and do, just doing what's necessary to get you to the never failed. I was very lucky that I, I think I was 23 when the English Institute of Sport set up started in 2003, and you know I created almost just by accident. You know, different practitioners over the years that became sort of your team. Um, those people you mentioned, there was a guy called Tommy Yule in my early days mm. who did some S&C with, and, you know, you created a team and I think, you know, what you see with Andy Murray or something at the tennis who are able to, you know, the finances are there for them to be able to go out and create their team and have them traveling around the world with them. If it wasn't for the EIS, I just simply would not have been able mm. to have, you know, somebody like a Mark Campbell, I might've been lucky in the sense that he's a big squash fan. So he might've been able to have, I give him a squash lesson once a week. He gives me the, my training and my session, something like that. But the support that the EIS created and that team of expertise that they create around you was, you know, massively um, responsible for, you know, success. I think not just myself, but a lot in that generation of of athlete, mm-hmm. athletes, you know, for the last however many years in, in, in British sport. I don't think with British sport as a whole, we've had as, as good a decade as we just have, have had. And that's a lot to do with that lottery funding and the EIS and the support teams that are working with the athletes, to be honest. No doubt. And you mentioned there in terms of not, not having an Olympics to go to. Sorry <laughs> to mention the O word. I'm sure yeah, it comes no. up a lot yeah. for you. Um, and so how, how have you kind of reconciled that over the years? And uh, you've obviously been at the top of your sport, so there's a enormous pride to, to take that. It's the one thing that I would change in my career without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, I can't class it as a regret because it's sort of out of my hands, not something that I personally could have changed, but certainly um, something I wish I could. And yeah, it's the pinnacle, isn't it? And 
Um, however, I like to view the glass as being half full for squash, for sure. And, you know, we're lucky in, in the 20 years I was on tour, the way that our tour progressed and grew all around the country and all these different areas in the world that are playing squash now, like in South America, the US, Asia, Eastern Europe, these big squash countries that have come sort of from nowhere because of the sport growing around the world. It's still not on the level as the football and tennis and, and golf, for example, but quite often it's always compared to those sports. I can actually compare squash having been part of the EIS and seeing athletes in other sports train. There's lots of sports that are Olympic sports that those athletes are reliant on funding or sponsorships. Mm. You know, it might be, you know, I remember um, seeing Olympians in the gym who were only able to compete because it was London 2012 and it was a home Olympics. And after that, they had to go and get a real job. They couldn't afford to carry on um, playing their sport for a living. So I think, you know, squash does sit somewhere in the middle, despite not being in the Olympics, we're able to sort of make a career out of our, our sport. But obviously we'd love that icing on the cake mm. um, if we could. Okay. So there's a, there's a level, a level of gratitude that you can make a living. You can be a professional squash player just in a similar way that perhaps triathletes can, can make a career competing in Ironmans and, and various, you know, um, paydays that they can they can take as well as the olympics what what's missing then what's why does it keep getting rejected i mean i, I keep hearing things about televisual it's not necessarily easy so to, it's all they've gone down the urban route now so it's all sort of supposedly youth and you know so which is why they've gone skateboarding and yeah. break dancing climbing you know, yeah trying to appeal with youthful message which is you know if anyone's you know squash is been seen as the world's healthiest sport for a number of years in terms of the calories you burn you know tackling obesity in youth for example even now you know squash courts they have giant ipads as a front wall where you can play candy crush on the front wall you know if things like that don't appeal to youth rather than them sitting in their home playing on an ipad you know go and play sport but you're playing on an ipad you know things like this are um, so it's disappointing because the ioc have had a seven point criteria things like it has to be the pinnacle has to have the equality with male and female. You have to have that world infrastructure and the tour. Your anti-doping record has to be there. Uh, the televisual aspect, like you said, squash has gone away and tackled all of those points, point by point. You know, we've got a joint first sport to combine the male and women tours, equal prize money across the board. Um, the anti-doping record's second to none. Um, obviously, the health benefits, you know, the television side, I think the clips now, I think YouTube voted squash its best sport last year in terms of, you know, the highlights and the coverage that they get and the dynamism that the sport is showing on a day-to-day. And it would be our pinnacle, of course, as other sports that have been voted in where it's not quite. Mm. So what's disappointing, I think, for us is that we tick the criteria that's been delivered, yet we've still not found a place. On the flip side, that's helped us as a sport and it's helped grow our sport intrinsically. But sometimes it's been mixed messages there. You tick the you tick the boxes, however, you know, other sports. And I'm not in the business of trying to say one sport's better than the other. It's not. All, I love all sports. They're all great in their own unique way. But if you've got a criteria, it should be adhered to. Um, and, you know, the sports that have come in, based on that criteria, there's lots of them that haven't ticked all seven boxes, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like baseball, softball, massive in the state. So if it was a case of saying it's all about how many people watch on telly, you go, okay, fine. 
I understand we need to get our television numbers up, but it's about this, but it's also about anti-doping and their anti-doping record is shocking. Yeah, yeah. I'm just using baseball as an example. I don't want to upset anyone who loves baseball, but it's just an example of they've given equal weight to these seven criterias and not quite followed it through. Mm. So what do you think's the next challenge for squash to, Who knows to take that. that step? Who knows? It's very tough. We just have to keep growing, keep doing our thing. It seems like it's about appealing to the youth, um, which again is great. Um, and you've got to keep doing that. You know, unfortunately, other sports have almost jumped ahead of the queue a little bit in that, you know, we've been knocking on the door for a long time and there's a few of the sports, skateboarding, breakdancing. I mean, they were amazing to watch. Um, you, know, you see them, you go, wow. Um However, I just read this weekend skateboarding had its first ever UK championship. And you go in, but it's already an Olympic sport, but we've never had a UK championship before. Mm. So to me, that then, the infrastructure is not yet there. It's great. To me, I'd say it's great once you get your infrastructure up and running, give us a proposal and then we'll look at putting you in. But they've put a sport in based on Oh, it looks fantastic. We'll we'll put you in, but there's no infrastructure there to a sport. There's no governing body. There's no this, and it's all brand new. Mm. So it's almost like sort of definitely running before you walk. Uh, things there, you know, even sports like netball. Look at that growing. That's not an Olympic sport yet. Yeah. Seems like the sports in the that have been there and their infrastructure is all there, ready to go. That are being overlooked just because on a whim decided that looked good today oh that looked nice let's put that in so it's it's frustrating yeah yeah i can i can certainly em- empathize that with that and it, it seems though i mean i had a discussion at our conference actually um the guys from mclaren were talking about the rise of esports and yeah that'll be in next sure. and and actually the level I mean, the multi-million pound deals to play virtual basketball it's incredible. for these teams, yeah. um, which is FIFA which is soccer, a real they're all playing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the millions, millions at stake there. So again, if it was about the revenue, that, yeah. then good luck to them. But, you know, we're trying to promote healthy society and stuff like that. And you're talking about, for I'm obviously biased. But you're talking about a sport that's been voted by Forbes magazine for the last four years in a row, the world's healthiest sport. And yet we're, you know, we, we're going to put in the Olympics, which is all about faster, higher, stronger, allegedly. <laughs> a sport where you sit on your sofa and you press buttons seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there, whether we were, we're giving the right message mm. out to, you know, they can have their own championships and it's great and everyone supports, but is it an Olympic sport? Mm. Not for me. Yeah, it's certainly got some technical skill behind it, but um, hundred percent, and um, as, as everything does, and I'm certainly not knocking that. But you know, there's lots of problems in society with obesity and things like that, and you know, I think the Olympics has got a responsibility to, um, you know, upheld that, uphold yeah. that. To be honest, yeah. so some challenges ahead. Then what's um, so you've now retired, or as you've said, semi-retired, sort of retired from the tour for sure. Um, What's next for you? What's the next challenges ahead? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to become an ambassador for the sport, really. You know, try and um, spread the good word. Um, as I said, going all around the country, all around the world to different squash clubs. Um, ambassador for England squash. I've got my own academy, squash academy here in Sheffield, but also in the US and taking that around the world, trying to get some different sites for that. And yeah, just really just try and grow and showcase our sport to that next generation and 
whilst at it sort of one of the actual funny knock-on effects is actually re-energizing people in the sport who might not have played and their kids are playing and get them back on court as well so it's it's gone it's gone uh, sort of full cycle really people who played squash 20 or 30 years ago are getting back on court because um, their kids have started playing so it's um, yeah it's been a real pleasure to sort of become or try and become a little bit of a spokesperson ambassador for the sport and you're still coaching though so how's the transition from from athlete to to coach where you, you're not just tough. soaking it up you've got to you've got to manage and cajole people coaching's tough I remember one of my first coaching gigs about three weeks after I was um start the new season I took the summer off and then was back into it from September was the US Open it's the first major of the season and the first day I was in the squash club for eight hours watching matches and every player that I was working with be it England squash or personally his match went to five and it was stressful and emotional and I was then sort of studying opponents for next rounds and and I was there, and I remember thinking, as a player, I used to come in in the morning for about an hour, do my light practice. I'd go get a nice lunch, I'd go and have an afternoon nap, and then I'd come back and play my match in the evening. And thinking, actually, <laughs> coaching's hard. Um, but you have to remember, you know, you're there just like as a player. You have to remember that same process. I'm probably guilty of trying to make too big an impact too soon. You have to remember it's a journey, you know apply those building blocks and hopefully one day you'll get the click like I found. Mm. Um, you really have to adopt that same mentality as a coach and uh, that's not always easy, I'm finding. Mm. Well, we'll, uh, we'll watch with avid interest to see how that, how that goes because not every performer can, can uh, help other people no. perform in that sense. It's that single-mindedness that's required to, to perform at the best as an athlete is perhaps almost the polar opposite of that that supporting, uh, nurturing, nurturing role. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, con- congrats, Nick. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, congrats on the stellar career. It's been um, incredible to, to watch it over the years. Um, I'll take full credit of employing Ez, which was <laughs> yeah. the domino effect on your uh, rise to, to world, world number one. But a lot of the lessons around diligence and the the work ethic, but also the balancing that with the open-mindedness of of learning and going back and tackling with the, those weaknesses as well as celebrating those those strengths. But I love the fact that you've got this renewed purpose of of developing uh, the people in the sport, but also the sport itself. It's um, it's amazing to see. So thank you so much, Nick. Pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right, Nick. So if uh, people want to follow you further, where can they find out more? Yeah, I'm actually just started doing a podcast of my own now. So any squash fans out there, uh, you can find us on uh, on iTunes. We're the Holding Court Squash Cast. See what you did there? Holding, yeah, holding court. court. Yeah, there's lots of playing on words. There's a section called The Boast and Hit the Nick. And yeah, we really go for it on the puns in that one. And um, yeah, my website, nickmatthew.co.uk or on Twitter, Instagram, Nick Matthew or Nick Matthew Squash. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Nick. If you'd like to follow Nick more, then you can see him on Twitter at Nick Matthew and also his website, nickmatthew.co.uk. And if you're interested in his podcast, then check out Holding Court.
You can follow us on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and you can subscribe through the website supportingchampions.co.uk.